take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah. And while you are turning there, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we come and we gather to be in your presence because it's where we need to be. It's what we need, Father God. Lord, we need your presence. We need your word more than we even need food for our life. And so as we turn to your word, Lord, I ask that you would open up our eyes to understanding your word. And Father, that you would open up our heart to receiving your word. And that your word would have its perfect work in us. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So as I was preparing this sermon, I'm trying to think of all the different ways that I can put this. And of course, through real life experience and things that happen, the Lord has provided ample illustration for us this morning because it's easy to become and feel overwhelmed in this life and overtaken in this life. Um, we live in a fallen world and things are not for certain. And with all the uncertainty, we can get discouraged, distraught. We can become in despair as we begin to wonder where God really is. And what I mean when I say that is we, we have a, uh, a family who just said goodbye to their dear loved one. He is a Christian in the Lord, diagnosed with a terminal inoperable brain tumor. And he passed away on Saturday morning. I also say this knowing that there is a congregation in Albuquerque that is uh, dealing with some tremendous news this morning. The uh, security guard at Albu Calvary Albuquerque um, the details are kind of, he was killed while on ministry at Calvary of Albuquerque. He, he, his ministry was the security team and he was checking out a strange car. And as he checked it out, the car looked like it was going to leave and it turned around and instead ran him over. No rhyme, no reason. He's serving in his ministry. Why? We go through these different things and we brings us to question, where, where's God, why God? And it's even harder on us, especially if we've recently failed or been corrected and we're possibly under or coming out from being under the discipline of the Lord. It's during these times we look for comfort and assurance, anything to know that God is still with us, especially when we're facing against the opposition against us from this world, because we do live in a fallen world. And we have fallen people around us, and there is also a spiritual warfare going on around us. So this is the place that Israel finds themselves in as they come out of the exile, back in the land, rebuilding the temple, but they're still feeling small and insignificant, and they're under the rule of a foreign empire now. No longer are they under the reign of their own. And Psalm 13 kind of sums it up. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Last week, we started the book of Zechariah, and we looked, and, and we know that his messages focus around his name, just like the other prophets, and his name means the Lord remembers. And so this week, we're going to begin looking at the eight visions that God gave Zechariah as an encouragement to the people. This morning, we're going to look at the first two. And I, I want to prepare us as we look at it. The language is apocalyptic. And we tend to think apocalyptic and we, and we start thinking like the end and, and all that. Apocalyptic, all it means is revelation. It's re revelatory. And um, it's the same language found in the book of Daniel, found in the book of Ezekiel, found in the book of Revelation. Apocalyptic 
prophecy differs from normal prophecy. Normal prophecy would address the majority living under the blessing and the apocalyptic addresses the minority or the remnant that are under foreign domination. Apocalyptic prophecy exhorts the faithful to persevere against oppression as opposed to repent and come to salvation. It's more about perseverance against the the current state of affairs. Apocalyptic warns of worldwide cataclysmic events. That's what we all kind of associate it with and prophesies of new heaven and a new earth. The other thing about apocalyptic prophecy is that it uses visions and symbols that are mysterious, yet also exciting. And so as we venture into Zechariah and his visions, we need to recognize what these visions are and more importantly, what they're not. They are symbolic representations of truths and events designed to highlight their meaning, but they are not video surveillance. Okay, what that means is it's, it gives a picture, but it's not like this crystal clear, exact, liter, literal picture. Usually the visions depict something from the future. Sometimes they depict things from the past or even in the present. And so we're going to look at the first two visions in Zechariah. And what they are is they are a message of God's comfort and God's assurance to his people. And I think in times like these that we find ourselves in, we need that, again, that encouragement of God's comfort and his assurance. So starting in chapter one, verse seven, it says, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido. I looked out into the night and I saw a man riding on a chestnut horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the valley, and behind him were chestnut, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking to me replied, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They reported to the angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees, we patrolled the earth, and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord responded, How long, Lord of armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you've been angry with these 70 years? The Lord replied with kind and comforting words, the angel who was speaking with me. So the angel who was speaking with me said, proclaim the Lord of armies says, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease, for I was a little angry, but they made the destruction worse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. In mercy, I've returned to Jerusalem. My house will be built, rebuilt within it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord of armies says. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Then I looked up and saw four horns. So I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I asked, what are they coming to do? He replied, these are the horns that scattered Judah so no one could raise his head. These craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cut off the horns of the nations that raised a horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. And so we have two visions. And with the first vision, we have the vision of the horsemen. We're going to look at the vision. Verses seven and eight. It says, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shavuot in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah and says, I looked out in the night and I saw a man riding on a chestnut horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the valley and behind him were chestnut brown and white horses. Now, I want to give us a little bit of context about what's going on here. Where they find themselves at is, This is after Haggai gave the prophecy and and got the people rebuilding the temple. As the people picked up their work of 16 years of laying it down and they started rebuilding the temple, we have what's recorded in Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5 says, Ezra came to Jerusalem. 
Okay, I didn't put that one up there because it's long. I'm going to read it to you. If you want to turn to Ezra chapter 5, you can follow along with me. Ezra chapter 5, it says, But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Ido, promised to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. And at that time, Tatanai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar Banzanai, and their colleagues came to the Jews and said, who gave you the order to rebuild the temple and finish this structure? They also asked them, what are the names of the workers who are constructing this building? But God was watching over the Jewish elders. These men wouldn't stop until a report was sent to Darius so that they could receive written instructions about this matter. Here's the text of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shethar Banzanai, and their colleagues, the officials in the region, sent to King Darius. They sent him a report written as follows to King Darius. All greetings. Let it be known to the king that when we went to the house of the great God in the province of Judah, it is being built with cut stones and its beams are being set in the walls. This work is being done diligently and succeeding through the people's efforts. So we questioned the elders and asked, who gave you the order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? We also asked them for their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. Then they said, and, and this is what they said to us. They gave us, we are the servants of the God of the heavens and the earth, and we're, we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But since our ancestors angered the God of the heavens, he handed them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed the temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of King Cyrus of Babylon, he issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. He also took from the people in Babylon the gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and carried them to the temple in Babylon. He released them from the temple in Babylon to a man named Sheshbazar, the governor by the appointment of King Cyrus. And Cyrus told him, take these articles, put them in the temple in Jerusalem, let the house of God be rebuilt on its original site. Then the name Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of God's house in Jerusalem. And it's been under construction from that time until now, but it has not been completed. So if it pleases the king, let a search of the royal archives in Babylon be conducted to see if it's true that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the king's decision regarding this matter be sent to us. So here they are rebuilding the temple. And all of a sudden they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where's your building permit? Did you go to the city? Did you, did you pull the right permits? Well, you you got to hold off. And so they send a letter to the king and they said, look, we caught these guys building stuff. Don't worry, we stopped them. And they said, search the archives. Make sure that they're, they're building something that's supposed to be built. And what we don't catch is that in chapter 6 of Ezra is King Darius making the order for them to search all the archives and find out whether this was true or not. And it says that they searched for a long time. And finally, in this far province, they found the scroll that contained the archive of King Cyrus's order for them to go and rebuild the temple and that they would pay for it and all that stuff. Now, this word from Zechariah, this prophecy, came five months to the day from the time they started rebuilding the temple. Why is that five months important? It came three months after Zechariah's first prophet and two months after Haggai's last prophet. We see that it's on the 24th day of the 11th month of Shabbat, five months after the rebuilding began. And here's why that matters, because the letter from King Darius is still out in the open, unanswered. And it took Ezra, five months to journey from Babylon to Jerusalem with the hand of the Lord helping him. In Ezra 7, verse 8 and 9, it says, Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month since the gracious hand of God was on him. It takes five months to make that journey. Why do I point this out? Because they're still building five months later. They have not gotten word back from Darius, whether it's allowed or not. They're working in a time of uncertainty. At any moment, the letter could come and it could say, stop it, not allowed. Israel was vulnerable. Uncertainty is surrounding their work. We know what the response from Darius was, but they didn't. 
During this uncertain time, this is when the visions of Zechariah came to them. And they bring some of the most encouraging messages from the Lord that has ever been preached to the nation of Israel. These are visions given to Zechariah. They are not dreams. Zechariah was not asleep. He was very much awake, as we will see, noted by his constant interruption and constant questions. The fact that it speaks of Zechariah speaking into the night, it's many take that speaking into the night and they take that and they say, oh, he must have been asleep. It was nighttime because everybody at nighttime goes to sleep, right? All, all of us night owls agree, right? The fact that it speaks of Zechariah speaking in the night possibly speaks towards the mercy of God. God often speaks his love to his people in the dark of the night of their sorrow and their distress. It could be that kind of night. When you're in that type of night, look for the Lord to be speaking his mercy and his love to you. So this vision is seen at night. The vision includes a man riding a chestnut or a red horse. And this horseman was standing among myrtle trees, a forest of them in the valley. And behind him were chestnut, brown, and white horses. And you're going, this sounds like a lot of the dreams I have. I have no idea what it means. So we're going to look at the interpretation of it. Verse 9 and 10. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking to me replied, he says, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Now there's keys to proper interpretation of symbols and prophetic scripture. It's not just a free-for-all. You can't just make it whatever you want it to be. Here's some principles. Number one, you look for the text itself to provide the interpretation, which we find a lot of that here because Zechariah says, what are these? Number two, you make sure that your interpretation of the symbols fits the immediate context. You can't make it just fit whatever, and then all of a sudden it doesn't fit the context, and you're like, yeah, that's just how it is. It's a big, confusing mess. You want to also consider the greater context of the whole book. It should not disrupt the context of the entire book that it's found in. And then you have to ground your interpretation of a symbol and other revelation in scripture using the same imagery, but however, that comes with a caution. Because one writer may use a symbol in a different way than another writer. He may even use one symbol to represent different things in different contexts. But it does give us a general principle to begin working with. Beyond our own imagination, of course. Number five, you want to understand the imagery and the historical context in which the vision was given. Um, that being said, horses were a sign of uh, power and a sign of swiftness and things like that. Whereas today, we might look at horses and we go, oh yeah, those are you know fun, recreational. They're great pets. See how the historical context differs when we look at it that way? And then we also have to consider two other principles that go along with that. One is revelation is progressive. And second is there is the law of double fulfillment. There is a near and a far fulfillment, an immediate partial fulfillment, and a fuller fulfillment much later. Let me see. I don't know if you can see this uh, chart here, but what you have is in the far left side of the screen is the prophet looking this way. And all you can see are mountain peaks. We reading the prophecy are standing sideways looking at it. And so we can see not only the peaks, but also the valleys. You can't make out the writing, but here in the middle of the two peaks, you see the uh, peak of the birth of the Savior, the death of the Savior, that valley before the Antichrist and the return of Christ, that valley there is the valley known as the church, which the prophets never saw. And the church in the New Testament is described as a mystery to the prophets of old. We are living within the mystery to the prophets. Clarence Larkin made this picture. Okay, I didn't write this. This isn't for me. So when you're climbing a mountain range, you think you've gotten to the top, you realize that there's a valley and there's a peak. You thought nearby is actually several mountains away with several valleys in between. So that's kind of the view that we have when it comes to prophecy. Sometimes the prophet was speaking about things. They don't know how near and far it is. 
And here's an example of one that has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. We read it every year at Christmas. Isaiah 9 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7 says, The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Well, the son was given to us and he was a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting prince of peace. But the government is not yet upon his shoulders. That's the second coming of Christ. And there's four points of prophecy to also consider. The, the prophet will prophesy about their own time. Pre-exilic prophets prophesied about captivity and restoration. And then you have, after that, the prophets that prophesy about Christ. And they also prophesy about the millennium, the millennial reign, the new kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. And so verse 9 In Zechariah, where we're at, Zechariah plainly says, what are these things? And then there's an angel and he says, I will show you what these things are. He says, they are the ones the Lord has sent out to patrol the earth. Now the man riding on the horse, other translations will say the man mounted on the horse, on a chestnut red horse. This is the angel of the Lord, which anytime you encounter angel of the Lord, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ known as a Christophany. So we have Christ here on his horse. The red horse usually stipulates not only a war horse, but also a a victory horse. And it's in the, behind him, there's not explicitly named riders on the horses, but behind him are horses of all different colors. And the context and the narrative requires that there are riders on those horses because They report their findings back, and it doesn't say the horses report their finding back. So we are able to logically assume that there are riders on the horse. And what these represent is Christ with his host of armies. His heavenly host of heaven. Now the vision, the color of the horse isn't that important. You can't ascribe a meaning to the color of the horses. It wasn't even important. How do I know it's not important? Because when the vision is interpreted, the color of the horse never is mentioned. They're not given any particular significance, so let's not focus on that. It's probably a detailed description just to indicate that he had a full vision. It wasn't in black and white, but nothing more than a meaningful detail. But the scene is the Lord and his hosts standing in the midst of a myrtle forest. And it's mentioned three times, so that myrtle forest is important. That myrtle forest is in a valley. And the valley is going to be a representation of the depths. It's also called a hollow in other things. And, and what it is, it's at night and the darkness and in the depths. Okay, so you're talking about a dark time, a low time. And there's a forest of myrtle trees. And the myrtle trees have been used elsewhere to describe the people of God or the nation of Israel. The mighty cedars of Lebanon have been used to describe the proud and prideful people. Myrtle trees are evergreen trees that only grow to a height of about eight feet. They're kind of short trees. And this pictures Israel's seeming insignificance, their feelings of smallness. Isaiah has used the myrtle tree to describe Israel. It says, instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. And instead of a briar, the myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. Just as the myrtle tree is an evergreen, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, have a remarkable tendency to continue on, even though men like Pharaoh, Haman, Herod, and Hitler, throughout her entire history, have tried to destroy her completely. The blossoms of the myrtle tree, when crushed, releases a wonderful fragrance. John Corson says the same is true of Israel. Whenever nations have sought to crush her, the fragrance of God comes through her. 
The people of God are not in the depths and the darkness alone. That's what this vision is saying. You are not alone. The rider on the horse, the Lord himself with his hosts is among the people. So the Lord is with his people in their troubles and their griefs. This was a message that they needed to hear. And I think it's a message we need to hear this morning because it's not just for Israel, but also that the Lord is in our midst. He says that he will never leave us, never forsake us. He is with us. Here's the situation. Verse 11 and 12, it says that they reported to the angel of the Lord, standing among the myrtle trees, we have patrolled the earth and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. The angel of the Lord responded, how long, Lord of armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you have been angry with these 70 years? It's a reconnaissance patrol. They've been patrolling the whole earth. Remember in Job when you read and it says that all the angels went to and fro about the earth and there was Satan going to and fro about the earth and then at the time in which they come before the Lord, he came before the Lord. It's not just Satan that's going to and fro across the earth. The Lord has sent out his hosts going to and fro. And their report is right now, the whole earth is calm and quiet. And you know what? If we stopped there and we saw that alone, we might go, wow, what a great thing. World peace. And we think that that's a great thing. Can there truly be world peace while the world is still fallen, while sin is still in the world? It's a peaceful serenity. It's a peaceful rest from war and conflict. Perhaps a reference to the peace in Darius's rule that was come through the result of Persian oppression and Persian injustice. But this is a peace and a calm that does not extend to Israel. You see, Israel is now under Gentile dominion, yet the rest of the world is at peace. And the angel of the Lord remembers Christ himself Responding, he says, how long, Lord of armies, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you've been angry with these 70 years? Here's the situation. The people of God are afflicted and suffering and the rest of the earth is at peace. In other words, the world has no concern for the people of God. Has no concern for their current state. No one is losing sleep over the oppression of God's people. And that reality shouldn't shock us, should it? Same is true throughout the ages, and it's true today. The world is not concerned about the affliction of God's people, no matter if that's Israel or the church today. Psalm 44, 22, the psalmist says, Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And here's the message to Israel then and to us here this morning. The world doesn't care how God's people are afflicted. Jesus does. Do you know that Jesus, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he sat down and now he's there and he makes intercession for us? In this picture, he's making intercession for Israel now. He says, how long, Lord of armies, will you withhold mercy? And as he makes intercession, what we see are two proclamations that come from the Lord God. Zechariah chapter one, verse 13, it says, the Lord replied with kind and comforting words to the angel who is speaking with me. So the angel who is speaking with me said, proclaim the Lord of armies says, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. It says, I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease for I was a little angry but they made the destruction worse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. In mercy, I've returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. The Lord replied with kind and comforting words. How long, O Lord? And the reply was kind and comforting words. Did you know that you can cry out to the Lord and his response is gonna be kind and comforting words? He's not going to say, why are you bothering me again? Can't you just like put up with a little bit of trouble for a little while? 
he had kind and comforting words to the angel and the angel proclaimed for the Lord. He says, the Lord God is extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. He's jealous for his city. He's jealous for his people and he's jealous for his mountain. He's jealous for the mountain that represents him. And he's fiercely angry with the nations at ease. The Lord says, yes, I was angry. Yes, I was angry with, with Israel. He says, but I was only angry a little bit. He really only wanted them to be taken in captivity to lose their um, autonomy of sovereignty that they had. He says, but the nations made it worse. They went beyond what God called them to do. And they were probably even more cruel than they should have been. They were, they were the Lord's instrument for judgment, but they were not careful. That didn't give them free reign to treat God's people, however. And God goes on and says, I have returned in mercy to Jerusalem. And this indicates that the people returned to the Lord because remember Zechariah's prophecy. He, he first told them, the Lord says, return to me and I will return to you. And here we have God clearly saying, I have returned to Jerusalem. And so the Lord declares that his house will be rebuilt. You know how encouraging that is to people that are waiting to find out if Darius is going to make them stop their project, if they're just building for no reason, if they're just working and it's all for naught. God says, my house will be rebuilt. And you know when God says something will happen? It will. You can take it to the bank. But not only will his house be rebuilt, he's also saying it'll be expanded. In, in verse 17, he says, proclaim further. This is what the Lord of army says. My city will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. When he says that a measuring line in verse 16 will be stretched out over Jerusalem, that's the next vision that we'll look at is the surveyor. He's, he's measuring it because he's going to expand it. He's, he's seeing how big is it now because I'm going to make it bigger. I'm going to expand it. And what we see here in verse 17, we have that short-term and that long-term fulfillment. Uh, you can think of it as bifocal glasses. The prophet is looking through bifocal glasses, but seeing the near and the far at the same time. Whether promising in the present, the near future, or the far future, the Lord speaks comfort, and he continues to choose his people. Did you know that the Lord continues to choose his people today? Did you know that the Lord continues to choose the church today as well? Lamentations 3.22. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. His mercies never end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Lord God. So we come to the second vision. Second vision is four horns and four craftsmen. We're going to take a look at the horns first. Verses 18 and 19. It says, then I looked up and I saw four horns. And so I asked the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that scattered Judah Israel, and Jerusalem. And what you have here is the tribal name, the covenant name, and the beloved name. There seems to be no break from the first vision to this one, and that's why I included them together. I see no reason to break it either. In fact, I see it goes together with the first one because it's like, how can he speak comfort to them? And how can he say what he said about, how's he going to show that he's bringing back his mercy to them? He says, here's the vision of these four horns. Zechariah asked for help to interpret its meaning. And the angel gave the interpretation, the four horns growing out of the ground. Now horns are on a horned animal and the horned animals are the fierce animals. They use their horns to gore and to destroy and these horns represent that fierce power and the empires that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The horn has always been a symbolic of power and used of a Gentile king to represent his kingdom. We, we get this from Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. It says the ten horns are ten kings who will rise from the kingdom. 
And another king, different from the previous one, will rise after them and subdue the three kings. Revelation 17, 12, the 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And so we associate horns with the kings that represent their empires. One very common interpretation is they represent the Gentile nations that generally occupy the four corners of the earth who have throughout the centuries troubled and persecuted the Jewish people. So they represent the four points of the compass, the Gentile nations that are generally found in them, north, south, east, and west. However, I think it's best to see them instead as four specific world empires, specifically and frequently mentioned in Daniel's prophecies. Daniel chapter two, we remember the dream of the statue that was made out of four metals, the gold representing Nebuchadnezzar, representing Babylon, the the silver chest and arms representing the Medo-Persian empire, the bronze belly and thighs representing the Grecian empire, and the iron legs representing the Roman empire, which it finishes out with the mixture of iron and clay representing the revived Roman empire at the end. We also have Daniel, Chapter 7, in which the beasts are representative as well. You have the lion with eagle's wings that represents the Babylonian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire represented as the bear, raised up on one side to indicate that the Persian side quickly and significantly outgrew the Medo side. You have the Grecian Empire represented as a swift and deadly leopard with four heads and the wings of eagle to signify the swiftness which with it conquered through Alexander the Great. And we know that this represents that to the four heads. When Alexander the Great died, his four generals took over. And then then you get into the uh, history lesson between the uh, Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And then you have the Roman Empire represented by the terrible, horrifying mongrel beast. This is not an exact representation. This is not an accurate picture. This is just drawn from a imagination based on the description in the Bible. The four horns, the four segments of the statue, the four beasts given to represent the complete and total times of the Gentiles, the nations and the empires that will rule over Israel before Israel receives a king again. It may be objected that only two of these empires had any significant impact on the Jewish people by the time of Zechariah, the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. But remember, Zechariah's prophetic book is describing all of God, all of God's promises and, and prophecies for his people from that time and far into the future, even up to the time of the bodily return and the earthly reign of Jesus Christ when he comes to set up the millennial reign. Well, then we have... The craftsman. 20 and 21, the Lord showed me four craftsmen and I asked, what are they coming to do? He replied, these are the horns that scattered Judas so no one would raise his head. And these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cut off the horns of the nations that raised a horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So Zechariah has then shown four craftsmen or four angelic carpenters That means that they are skilled workers of metal, wood, or stone. And their number is intended to parallel the four horns. The four horns being symbolic and the four horns being figurative, these craftsmen are also symbolic and figurative. There's a few things that we have to take note of. Number one, it's the Lord who revealed these craftsmen to Zechariah. That makes them something that the Lord God wanted to make known as part of the message of comfort and assurance for his people. When he says, I am bringing back mercy and I am angry with those nations, these craftsmen showing that they're going to take out those nations is God's message of comfort and assurance. Also, what they are is not as important as what their mission is. Zechariah never asked, what are they? He said, what have they come to do? And the answer for the mission of the craftsmen is that they're coming to terrify and cut off the horns of the nations that raised a horn against Judah. 
there to terrify and cut off the world empires that distress the people of God and their identity as best as understood again through the prophecy of Daniel. The first craftsman would be associated with the Medo-Persian empire, Cyrus, who came and cast down the kingdom of Babylon. Darius received the kingdom, but his general, Cyrus, cut it down. And Cyrus is mentioned. He was prophesied about. Isaiah 44, verse 28, who says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure and says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt and of the temple, its foundation will be laid. See, the Bible prophesied that he would say that. And then in Isaiah 45, the Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and disarm kings to open doors before him and even city gates will not be shut. He's the tool of the Lord in bringing judgment against that nation, that empire of Babylon. The second craftsman would be associated with the kingdom of Greece and with Alexander the Great. Daniel chapter eight, verse three, Daniel's prophecy says, I looked up and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns and the two horns were long. One was longer than the other and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, charging to the north and to the south. No animal could stand against him and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes and he came toward the two-horned ram and I'd seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly. When he became powerful, the large horn was broken and four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing towards the four winds of heaven. The interpretation, 820. The two-horned ram you saw represents the kings of, Medo, of, of Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. Now, the third craftsman would be associated with the Roman Empire, which conquered Greece after the kingdom was divided amongst Alexander's four generals. Daniel 7, 7 says, After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong. With large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. You jump down to verse 19 of chapter 7, and it says, Then I want to be clear about the four beast, the fourth beast. The one different from all the others, extremely terrifying, with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet whatever was left. And then we have the interpretation, verse 23. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth. It will trample it down, crush it, the 10 horns are 10 kings that will rise from this kingdom and another king different from the previous ones will rise after them and subdue three kings. And we all know him. Well, we know the idea of him and we're all looking for him. Everybody searches the headlines to find out who is this. It says he will be the one who speaks words against the most high and oppress the holy ones of the most high. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. This is the antichrist who comes out of this fourth kingdom that will rise up and for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, he's given dominion over the people of God. The fourth craftsman is associated with the kingdom of Christ who conquers not only the Roman empire, both the earthly one of old and the revived. You see when Christ came and he died on the cross, he conquered the Roman empire's power. When he comes again, he's going to conquer the revived Roman empire, the future time, but all the earthly kingdoms also will be conquered underneath him. This is the kingdom represented by Daniel's prophecy of the stone cut without hands. Daniel 2.34. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. 
Then the iron and fired clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Mountains are a symbol of kingdoms. And it says this kingdom became great and it filled the whole earth. It says, in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms, bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. Put that together with Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven. And you have the complete picture of God's fulfillment on the millennial reign of Christ. The comfort of God. We may feel abandoned by God. Maybe we go through dark times. Maybe, maybe we've had such tragedies hit us as, as what's experienced in Calvary of Albuquerque, the sudden loss of somebody. Maybe, maybe we've, we've had that abandonment where we feel like we do all these things for God, yet we're still suffering because we have family members whom we love and dear. Maybe we've gotten a diagnosis ourselves. Maybe our family member has a diagnosis some trouble that we're going through where we feel abandoned. But like the rider on the horse in the midst of the myrtle trees, know that God is in the midst of you. When we feel like we're going through the oppression and it seems like the whole world could not care less, God cares. God sees. Most importantly, God remembers. He sees what we go through. He remembers his people. He's jealous for us. He remembers his promises and he's faithful to fulfill them. You see, God's people will have no ally in this world. We are not to look anywhere in this world for an ally. We are not to look for any deliverer or any help in this world. Our sole defender is Jesus himself. God saying, I will again choose Jerusalem. Sometimes I look at that and I go, are you kidding? What manner of love and commitment and grace and mercy does our God have that he would continue to love, that he would continue to have compassion, that he would continue to choose a people like Israel. And then of course, in my sense of, oh, I'm better than them, all of a sudden I realize, wait a minute, God does the same thing for me. Only a God of great faithfulness is like that. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. We have a people who've been afflicted for 70 years because of their unfaithfulness towards God. They're back in the land. They're trying to pick up the pieces and God steps in and he says, I'm coming back and I still choose you. Maybe you're one of those people though that never fails the Lord. So you're like, so what? It might not be a big deal to you, but maybe you're like me or like the rest of us. This is great reason for rejoicing that we can make mistakes and God will still choose us. God will still stand with us. We serve a faithful God who promises never to forsake us, never to leave us. There's an old hymn. It says, how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to then to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, your sustainer and strength. I'll be your defender and cause you to stand, upheld by my merciful almighty hand. When through fiery trials the pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that is trusting in Jesus as Lord will press on enduring the darkest of storms. Even though hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. What a beautiful assurance that our assurance does not rest on our ability to be faithful. Our assurance rests on a God who's sovereign over nations and empires. 
Our assurance is in one who chose us once when we were unworthy. It says that even while we were yet still sinners, Christ died. It says God demonstrated his own life for us that while we were enemies of God, he sent his own son. And yet we also see that he is the God who continues to choose us, though we remain unworthy. That's the encouraging message, not only to the Jewish remnant, but also to the church and the bride of Christ, whom Christ has promised that he will present spotless and holy. You see, God says, no one in the world is for you. He says, but I am for you. And that's all that matters. And Christ has said that I am returning for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we thank you for your words of encouragement. We thank you for the prophecy that you gave to Zechariah, Lord. And I pray, Father, I pray for those who maybe have not yet returned to you, that they would hear the words, that they would hear the message, that you have not forsaken, that you have not left, but that you stand ready, willing, and able to forgive, desiring to show mercy to your people that you have said, I will choose Jerusalem. And Christ has said that I will choose the church. I pray that any who hear that grace this morning, Lord, that your spirit would be speaking to their heart, leading them to the cross of Christ to come and ask for the forgiveness, to come and, 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 and to return to you, Lord, and find that the promise that you'll return to them is true and you're faithful to fulfill it. And then Lord, I pray for the rest of us as we walk through this world, as we go through these times, as we see that evil is running rampant right now, that we would understand that nothing is out of control, nothing is out of your hand. Everything is according to your plan and you have made an assurance to your people. And we look and we long for the day your kingdom to come. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you and it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.